other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Lately, I've been, I've been losing sleep, dreaming about the things that we could be. But baby, I've been, I've been praying hard. Said no more counting dollars. We'll be counting stars. Yeah, we'll be counting stars. Well, it seems like the whole world is space crazy, and uh, I don't know that uh, our country, anyway, has been this space-obsessed since 1969 uh, during the Apollo mission. And uh, a lot of us have been following what's happening with Artemis 1, the unfortunate fact that uh, they had to scrap this launch. Uh, It looks like it's going to be rescheduled for Saturday afternoon at uh, 2.17 Eastern. But a guy who has been following this and everything related to space very closely is uh, Dr. Brad Tucker. He is very accomplished. He is an astrophysicist, a cosmologist, and a fellow at the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the Mount Stromlo Observatory at the Australian National University. Dr. Tucker, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are in Australia currently, right? I am, as they say, the lounge down under where kangaroos in Canberra, where I'm based, you actually do get kangaroos occasionally in the street. You don't get it in Sydney, but you get it here. But I am originally from the U.S. I I grew up in California and oh. I went to uh, uh, Notre Dame for college and all sorts of things. But yeah, I'm I, I was gonna I was going to say I, I expected to hear someone sounding like uh, like Paul Hogan, but you don't have an Australian accent at all. No, look, you can't shake the American accent, so I definitely stand out with my verbose voice down here. That's for sure. (laughs) How did you end up in Australia? So I originally came down here to do my PhD. So I did my PhD um, uh, at ANU, and and that was kind of where my uh, project was. Uh, I then moved back to the U.S. I was in in the U.S. for a while at um, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, and also working out of uh, the NASA Ames Research Center, and then moved back to Australia uh, here for a kind of a my final job, so to speak. Wonderful, wonderful. That's great. Now, um, give us the latest in what happened with the scrapping of Artemis One. Why exactly, in layman's terms, did this uh, did this launch that was scheduled for Monday get scrapped? Yeah, look, it, and it was in the name of safety. It, essentially, these tanks have. Um, liquid hydrogen and oxygen. So in order to keep that normally a gas as a liquid state, you need to keep it super, super cold. Now, the problem was in one of the engines, the third engine, the um, they think it was either a problem with the valve or a sensor was giving higher readings. And the worry was if it was actually a bit warmer, you can get like condensation. You can get moisture buildup either in the fuel or on the outside of the tank, which means that when you ignite it, um, that fuel can cause problems. And when problems go in a rocket, they're usually catastrophic. So they decided, look, we can't figure out what's wrong. They couldn't solve it. They try to keep bleeding the engine, essentially, hoping maybe they could let out if there was excess air or something like that. So they tried that for a number of times. That didn't work. They eventually then obviously decided to halt it. After reviewing the data, it looks like they do think it's a sensor problem, that there was something involved 
with a sensor that is probably that the sensor itself is the problem, not necessarily the valves or the engines. So that's why they said, yeah, let's let's give it another go. As he said, Saturday um, afternoon, you uh, Eastern time. Uh, and then um, in order to account for the sensor problem, they'll allow the engine to fuel up a little bit longer and hopefully that sensor can normalize itself. Oh, okay. So are you optimistic that uh, that we're going to be in a, in a better place on Saturday for this launch? I, I am. The only issue now that a lot of it is is, is the weather, right? Mm. You know, afternoon thunderstorms, especially down in Florida, are quite common. So a 217 launch means the weather now may be the deciding factor. So I do think probably the technical problem they, they th- is what they think it is, and the workaround should provide the workaround. But yeah, I think now all eyes will have to be on the weather and whether um, lightning or, or rain slows down the rocket on Saturday rather than anything else. All right. Well, so fingers crossed. And then hopefully this does lead to a, uh, a serious return expedition to the moon for the first time in a, in a half a century. One of the things that we've also been covering over the last couple of weeks is the passing of the actress that played Uhura on Star Trek, uh, Nichelle Nichols. Not only was she one of my favorites, loved the TV show Star Trek, and I certainly loved her portrayal of Uhura, but uh, I love that uh, that they're having her ashes go into space. Now, um, apparently, and I didn't realize this until really a day or two ago, there's a big ethical debate over the appropriateness of sending human remains into space what is the what is the debate exactly what is the ethical uh conflict about sending uhura's ashes into space yeah look it's an interesting one because she she wouldn't be the first there's a few in fact on, on the mission that went out past pluto new horizons there was also the ashes and part of Clyde Trombaugh who discovered Pluto. So th- this has happened a few times. I think even Gene Roddenberry may have had mm. his ashes go into space as well. Um, but the one issue, and this is where we come across a lot of in space, is you know, we are sending a rapid amount of satellites uh, into orbit. Four or five years ago, there was only three or 4,000 satellites up in space. Now that number has almost doubled in just the past few years alone. So there's a worry of what we generally consider space junk. Now, ashes obviously aren't junk, but the problem is if you can't control it, you can't deal with it, we worry about things colliding and the kind of space environment impact, believe it or not. You're not necessarily worrying about harming space itself, but producing so many things that you can crash into things, things come up and burn up. So there's there's this world now that is space is finding itself across a lot of different areas where all of these ideas before were either super hard or expensive and not really a thing. And now it's like, yeah, you can kind of do that. Mm. And so then the question is, you know, where are the bounds of what we can and, and what we should do? You know, and then it even applies to the moon, as you said, you know, going back to the moon. So many people are excited, myself included. And it's going to be a very different world when the batches of astronauts on Artemis three land on the moon compared to, as he said, in 69 and 70, that sort of thing. So how does that affect that as well? So there's a lot of these different issues that are now starting to pop up that are requiring a serious thinking, even sending private space travel as well. You know, we see lots of tourists going up, the potential health impacts or people getting sick or injured from being in space as well poses some interesting challenges that no one has ever had to deal with as of yet. 
you mentioned space junk, and I know this is an issue that you're one of the go-to experts on. People often call you to verify whether or not something is space junk. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Dr. Brad Tucker, astrophysicist and cosmologist. When we use that term, space junk, what exactly is space junk? I think most of us understand on Earth what litter is. Somebody's driving around, they throw a, a coffee cup or a, or a, a sandwich uh, you know, container exactly. out their car window. We understand what that is. Where does space junk come from? What is it? Yeah, it's, it's a really different idea, and it, re- it is anything humans have made, so what we call artificial, but we can no longer control. And that's really the only definition, so it often starts as um, real things, satellites, for instance, but then the satellite runs out of fuel. Now, in space, you need to constantly rechange your orbit because you're slowly falling back to the Earth. If you run out of fuel, you're then uncontrolled and you kind of slowly spiral in on the Earth. You become space junk. If there's a bit of satellite that breaks apart, you become space junk. These are things that we just can't control anymore. So you don't know where they're going, where they're going to hit, or what they may do. And we've seen a few different cases of this you know my favorite example is there's been astronauts um in space who have dropped tools well you know there was a hammer and a screwdriver orbiting the earth at 20 ish thousand miles an hour you know that's big space junk um if you ever did you ever see the movie gravity sure uh, in absolutely 2012 with yeah, yeah. Well, George Clooney, when he goes off and dies, becomes space junk mm. in a really weird sense. You don't get to often say George Clooney turns into space <laughs> junk, but he did in that movie. And so the, the meaning here is then stuff that can stay in space, but eventually then it comes back to Earth. And if it comes back to Earth uncontrolled, we don't know when it's going to land or where. And we've seen a few cases in recent times of this stuff coming back down uncontrolled and either landing or land or just missing landing on land. So is the is the concern about space junk that it could harm someone when it comes back to Earth? Or is the concern that it would interfere with things that are in space, be they satellites or space stations or exploratory spaceships? Or is there just a concern about sort of the overall environment of space? So it's a little bit of everything. In fact, I think the smallest worry, though, is about people getting hit on Earth. That, that all, The odds are very small. And yes, I think some people think, oh, that's not a great idea. And it's not a great idea. But most of the Earth is ocean, uninhabited, places people don't live, those sorts of things. Now, it's still not a great solution, but the real worry in the scientific and space community is that stuff in space, as you said, because when they're traveling so fast, 17, 18, 19,000 miles an hour, and you crash head on, what happens is they shatter and break apart, but then they get stuck floating around the Earth, and so they can crash into more, which can crash into more, and there's a real worry that you reach a point, and this is called Kessler Syndrome, where there's so much, so many of these things, so much junk flying around that if you leave the Earth, you're going to crash into something. And here, when you're traveling tens of thousands of miles an hour, even something tiny bit can cause a hole. In fact, um, in the space shuttle Atlantis, the windows are essentially bulletproof glass. And there is a hole a few inches deep, and it was caused by a flake of paint. So literally a flake of paint created a hole 
inches deep in bulletproof glass because that's how fast you're traveling. And that ends up being the worry is how do we deal with all this junk in space and how do we prevent more from building up? Now, um, is the problem getting worse with all this private sector space travel, obviously SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin, with so many more suborbital space flights and now that's going to become um, probably a more regular thing and maybe even a more affordable thing for a lot of people is that going to be a broader concern? There, there is that, you know, we are just sending so many things up at a rate we've just never have seen. But, you know, we all, everyone is getting better. You know, SpaceX is a leader in reusability. The rockets come back down and land and the capsules and that sort of thing. And so it is, it's getting worse, but not as bad as the rate of things that we're sending up, which is a good thing. People are learning People are finding reusability. Uh, Rocket Labs, which is a group based in New Zealand, uh, in part working with uh, U.S. and Virginia, they started to catch their rockets as they come back down using a helicopter. It's kind of like a giant arcade game where the rocket booster comes back down, a parachute deploys, and a big old Sikorsky helicopter with a crane just catches it. So, So people have gotten better at that, and that means it becomes more affordable, as you said. We're also looking at new materials, so people are finding ways. In fact, I think Japan and um, Finland next year will both launch a wooden satellite, believe it or not. Mm. Um, we know what happens to wood when it burns up. It burns up. It's pretty straightforward. So even though we're sending more things, people are becoming better at, at preventing more of them or having a better idea of how to control it. But the worry is, you know, there is stuff from the Apollo era that will be in space for literally over a thousand years because of how long it will stay up there, if not more. So there's already so much stuff up there. There has to be an effort in cleaning up. And there are a lot of groups trying to work on cleaning it up. One of the things we do here, uh, where I work at Mount Strumlow in, in Canberra, Australia, is we have a laser system that can now deorbit space junk, very tiny bits, but we can use a laser to actually push it into the Earth's atmosphere and have it burn up completely. So lots of people working on the solutions as well as preventative measures. Mm-hmm. I think the question is, can we do this fast enough before we get some catastrophic collisions? Sure. If people just tune in, we're talking with uh, Brad Tucker. He's an astrophysicist and a cosmologist. Uh, Brad, you are also an expert in something called exploding stars, uh, what we call supernova. Uh, you've studied w- what stars blow up and how they blow up. What causes a star to blow up. Do all stars have sort of the same lifespan? And uh, when they get to XYZ number of uh, years old, do they tend to blow up? Or are there other factors that leads a star to blow up? Yeah, it's a great question because, in fact, stars are quite varied in their lifespan. You know, unlike humans that have a fairly set path forward in age and lifespan, stars are quite varied. And it actually just purely depends on their size. So, you know, great examples, if you look at the constellation Orion, um, you know, the famous Orion's belt, you can often see two bright stars, the shoulder, which is called Betelgeuse, which is a very big red star. And you also have Regulus, which is on the bottom, which is a very bright blue star. And when you see a bluish star in the sky, that means it's younger and it's a bit hotter. Uh, Redder star is a bit cooler and a bit um, older. So it's kind of like a flame, right? The, The hottest flame is really blue. And as it cools down, it's red. But, in, but often what happens then is as stars evolve with their age, they use up their fuel quicker. So in order to keep going, they have to burn more fuel. So they age faster and use up more and they burn up more. 
So the bigger the star is, ultimately, the shorter its lifespan. So something like the sun will last for about 10 billion years in total, and it's actually too small to blow up. We'll just kind of puff out into what we call a planetary nebula, one of these beautiful pictures we see, and then eventually end up as a white dwarf, a kind of a remnant core of a star. But in ones about eight times or so bigger than our sun, they use up their fuel too quickly, so their insides collapse through gravity. So mm. essentially they can no longer keep burning enough fuel to keep them afloat. Gravity comes pulling them in, uh, triggers essentially the creation of a neutron star or sometimes a black hole. You kind of squeeze the insides so tightly you can't squeeze it anymore, and then this giant shockwave rebounds and ignites it. And the cool thing is we've been able to find these shockwaves. We were using with some colleagues um, at Harvard and at Notre Dame uh, and at, at Johns Hopkins in the U.S. We were able to use uh, the, the Kepler Space Telescope, famous for finding planets around other stars, but measure the shockwave as it travels through the star, igniting the star and blowing up. And this literally happens in the scale of... 30 minutes to about two hours. And it's a really cool feature that you get to see a, a really active part of the universe. I think we think the universe is this slow thing that doesn't change, but the universe is constantly undergoing change. Mm. Well, no, that's pretty interesting and a bit of a relief that we don't have to worry about the sun blowing up tomorrow. <laughs> right. right? Um, you're also one of the world's foremost authorities on dark matter or dark energy. This is something that, uh, if I understand correctly, there was a big debate about whether this even existed years ago. What exactly is dark matter? So, so dark matter and dark energy are, are two things that are surprisingly completely unrelated, but they add up to the majority of the universe. And, and dark matter has been a little bit more contested to dark energy. And when we look at a galaxy, we can measure how fast the galaxy is spinning. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, if you're sitting in a desk chair, you, you, you move your arms out, you spin around and you move your arms out, you slow down as you pull them in, you speed up. Like a figure skater, you know, when they go into their triple axle, they get their body really close and spin really fast. Well, galaxies do this as well. If you have more mass weight towards the center, you should be spinning a bit faster. As your weight kind of distributes away, you should slow down. But what we see is on the outside of galaxies, they're spinning too fast. So either we don't understand how things spin, but we kind of have a good idea on that, or there's extra weight we're not measuring. And that was the idea of dark matter. And now there's lots of different ways people are searching for dark matter trying to actually look for what we think is the individual particles. So just as we have protons and neutrons, we think there may be something smaller that exists that we haven't seen before, but has a lot of weight and could be this missing link. But as you said, people have been looking for literally decades and, and we haven't gotten that clear answer. So how and where it is, is, is a very debated topic. And dark energy is a relatively newcomer to the scene. It was first discovered in 1998. And we think it's, the energy of empty space, that space itself has a little bit of energy and it can actually push. So imagine gravity pull things together like a vacuum, where now if you reverse the vacuum and push things away, it's kind of like gravity in reverse. This can expand the universe. And this is what we see is not only the universe is growing, but it's getting faster in its expansion. So the further away we look, the faster it's growing. And this has been a big question, what is this thing causing it? And it, so it's kind of cool to think that, you know, we've been studying the universe for decades and decades and decades. And the more we study, the more surprises we get. And I think that's the great thing about this field is 
you know, you, you try and put this picture together. It's like building a jigsaw, but instead of knowing what the picture looks like, we don't even know what the picture looks like. We have no idea if we have all the pieces. We have no idea if there's a big section missing or we're close to it. And so our pursuit of understanding the universe is this really endless, but so <laughs> amazing pursuit of understanding quite literally everything. Wow. And yet, are you close or are you not? That's the big question. Uh, well, th this has been fascinating, and we're definitely going to have to have you come back. Um, I'm sure you saw there was an article, there was a, a bunch of articles all over the place that NASA had released sound from yes. uh, a cluster of galaxies about 250 million light years from Earth. Now, we played the sound, and it was kind of cool, but... How do we have sound from 250 million light years from Earth? How does that happen? So, so A, I really just hope that this black hole sound becomes like the new Halloween <laughs> soundtrack. Can you imagine, like, Freddy coming out to it? The, that's going to be the best Halloween ever movie ever. That's my vote, so that's my idea. But, yeah, it's, it's cool because black holes do emit energy, and you're right. When you think of space, there is no sound. That's because usually in space, there's nothing for it to travel through. Right. You know, sound waves, acoustic waves travel through air. They can travel underwater, but not as effective um, or differently than in air. So normally, no. But when you have these, as you said, this cluster of galaxies with this black hole in the center, there's so much gas there that it actually can travel through the gas. There are so many bits of old stars that these sound waves can travel through. People can detect them and pick them up. And that's what they did using the X-ray Shonner telescope. Now, the sounds were much too quiet for our ears, I think about 57 octaves lower. So they had to crank up the dial, get into a pitch our ear can sound. But I think the amazing thing about those sounds, um, as you're saying, is that the, the relative sounds, you know, the, the you know, the relative changes are real. That's the real changes in waves through space. And so if you could, your ear could pick that up. You know, just as dogs can hear things humans can't, mm. if we could have picked that up with our ear, that's what exactly would have sounded like. And so now we have a way of experiencing it in a, in a very remarkable way. And I think it's really cool. It's, once again, black holes are really active in doing lots of things. And we don't appreciate how dynamic and active and I think amazing our universe is. Hmm. Uh, that is wild. Well, Brad, this has been a real treat. I hope we could do this again. I appreciate all the great work you're doing and you taking the time to join us. No worries. Anytime. Take care. All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. And if uh, you don't remember exactly what a black hole sounds like, well, it sounds something like this. Other side of midnight. midnight.